Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, the author of the new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl is an addiction psychiatrist, bioethics scholar, and assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University. He is a Zen practitioner and his clinical work focuses on applications of meditation and mindfulness. In the episode, we discuss addiction and human nature, the role of social and cultural factors, self-acceptance and recovery, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Carl Eric Fisher. To begin the conversation, Carl, I wanted to simply say congratulations on this book, and I'm, I'm curious how it feels. If I read correctly, you've been working on this for a number of years. So how does it feel to have The Urge, our history of addiction, out in the world? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a roller coaster. <laughs> I, I was thinking for so many years about what it would be like to publish a book and release a book. And the first thing to say is I started writing it before coronavirus, or at least before COVID-19. We, we had like the little baby coronaviruses back then. And um, I always imagined a big party and getting together with friends and having a, a sort of launch event in a physical world. And that didn't happen. And that's a real bummer. You know, I've been grieving that. That sucks. Mm. Uh, and there are all these amazing benefits to doing virtual events and meeting people across the world. Uh, and the thing that I've always put a high value on is making authentic connections with people who actually care about addiction and recovery and uh, putting information out there that's useful. My agent actually asked me, what is your definition of success? And it's not numerical, you know, like it's not about like my, cause nobody really makes money on book sales, especially if you take like your advance and you divide it by the 10 years I spent writing this book. Um, my definition of success is meeting people, having conversations, mm -hmm. being connected to healers and thinkers mm -hmm. and to advocates or just to people who I could be helpful to in some way. So that's, I mean, that's a gift. That's tremendous. And I've really loved that so far. Mm, well, great. Well, I consider it a gift to uh, be able to connect with you. I'm really enjoying the book about halfway through. Um, and I wanted to ask, I would assume when people think of addiction and recovery, maybe there's an initial bias towards whatever the latest research is. I'm curious what your thoughts are the case for, for learning about the history of addiction and some of those benefits are. Yeah. I had to go down that road of looking to the latest research. Basically, I got, for people who don't know the, the story of the book, I, I had an addiction crisis when I was in medical training. And then the genesis of the book really came about once I was relatively stable. 
I got out the other side of this episode. I got this specialized treatment for doctors. And I got to a place with therapy and assistance and mutual help meetings where I felt like I wasn't really in danger. It's important to always be vigilant. In the case of addiction, I don't think I was ever cavalier, but I didn't feel like I was going to relapse or anything. But I had this sense of like what exactly had gone wrong in me. And I didn't know how to approach that answer. Uh, Aside from my usual tools, which is medical research and just general clinical medicine. And so I went really deep into that literature including a little bit philosophy and philosophy of mind and philosophy of neuroscience, because that was also part of my scholarly work at Columbia. Uh, But it was ultimately unsatisfying. It wasn't a wash. I'm not a total skeptic when it comes to medical research, but it just didn't offer the full picture of how to make sense of addiction. And I also noticed that these really deep thinkers that I admired kept on coming back to issues in ancient philosophy or sociological considerations about how our ideas about addiction were formed. And I realized that we carry the baggage of that. There's no escaping the historical associations that have been attached to addiction. My understanding of addiction is different than someone in the 1920s. It's different than somebody around the time of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, And there's a lot of value in disentangling all of those threads and all those assumptions and all those biases. So I, that's, that's the answer to your question is why, why bother with the history is that I had the sense that it provided a way to fill in some of those gaps and just give a little more nuance and give give a fuller picture of the whole phenomenon. And maybe we could start around how you, think about or define addiction today and maybe if you could touch on a little bit of of the roots of that maybe how that has has changed over time yeah the roots are a good place to start so when i think about a definition of addiction i found it very useful to go back to how we understood the word when it first entered the english language 500 years ago around that time addiction didn't mean some extreme condition it didn't mean a sort of disease or disorder outside of the the normal boundaries of human suffering. And it certainly didn't mean getting taken over by a drug. Uh, what it meant was a, a devotion. It was a strong devotion that in doing so, somebody gave up some of their will. They gave up some of their willpower or their capacity to choose or do otherwise. But it wasn't necessarily negative. That you could addict yourself to something positive like study or to prayer. But the the important piece about it is that addiction wasn't a status. It wasn't a thing that happened to you. It was an active process. So um, nowadays, people define addiction in all these ways related to substances or will define addiction in these sorts of extreme ways like... um, the furthest extremes of substance use problems. But I I don't have such a hard and fast definition of addiction. I think it's actually really useful to think of it loosely because that's mm. it's actually where our cultural understanding comes from. And that's why a lot of people find it intuitive to say, oh, I'm so addicted to Wordle or I'm so addicted to that latest video game or I'm so addicted to this or that uh, because 
There's a way that that actually lines up with how we understood the word. I'm curious to ask. Um, I had a recent guest on the on the podcast. Um, the philosopher William Irvine wrote an older book, probably a couple of days, decades ago. Desire, um, something I think is a, a great book. And there's something in there that he writes: if desire was an Olympic event you know, we would all make the team kind of just this idea, obviously, you know, connects with human nature, you know, until getting into philosophy and different traditions, never really heard desire and things like that. Or, you know, maybe in the Eastern thing of clinging, grasping, never heard anything ab- about that being, um, you know, some, an important part of the path. How does addiction and, you know, this term desire or clinging connect it's crucially important. A, a classic definition of addiction, which I think is a caricature, so I'm not saying that like contemporary addiction researchers think this way, but a classic definition is that you get hijacked by a drug and then your your actions are totally compelled. And the interesting thing about that definition is that desire doesn't play into it. The person with addiction is sort of like a dumb automaton where they're acted on by an external force. What we know about a more nuanced conception of addiction is that desire, grasping, clinging is central. That, for example, this caricature of dopamine as a sort of pleasure molecule is totally wrong. That it's not about the one nice phrase I like is it's not about the pleasures of the feast, it's about the pleasures of the hunt. Mm. Dopamine, first off, dopamine is very complicated. And so anybody who tells you what dopamine is about, you should be very skeptical about <laughs> because it's not it's not as easily distilled and the sound bites are often misleading. Um, but at the very least, we can say that it's very important for uh, salience, meaning being pulled towards something. It's more about the wanting mm-hmm. and the chase than it is about the liking. So I, I, I think that's really important to recognize because addiction is not just... Again, it's not some dumb hijacking reflex action. My experience when I was struggling with addiction and the experiences that I've seen in working with patients is that choice is operative. It's not that somebody is addicted by choice or it's just a bad choice, but there is a way that choice does matter. There's a way that people's choices are disordered, misaligned, acted on by the sort of divided self in a way. So I think it's really important to to look closely at those those ideas like desire and clinging, uh, because when we reduce it to a sort of more mechanistic description, uh, we can we can miss that we can miss that dimension that really does matter on the ground in terms of someone's immediate phenomenological experience of what is it like to be an addict. Speaking of philosophers, a philosopher I really love, Owen Flanagan, who is himself in recovery and has written about it. Um, started off his whole philosophical journey about 10 years ago with this classic paper called What Is It Like to Be an Addict? Which is really a lot about this. It's not my idea originally. A lot of people have written about how that that characteristic, what is it like to be somebody with these misguided desires or these strong attachments or this this sense of like powerful clinging. Um, There's a way in which being an agent who is having those experiences is really central to the addictive experience. And I actually listened to the conversation you had on your podcast with Owen, which I, I thought was I thought was great. I, I'd highly recommend. It's definitely worth a listen. 
Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's a class. I was really honored to have him on. He's a fantastic guy. So thanks for the shout out. A standard kind of wrap up question that, that we asked Carl, um, is how do you think about or define wisdom? Obviously this is in search of wisdom, but I'm curious to maybe put that up front here a little bit in the conversation of there's obviously this idea of, uh, which you write about in the book of the path to recovery being, you know, very unique. Um, maybe you could say the same thing about the, the path to becoming wiser. Um, but how do you see the connection between maybe recovery and wisdom and, and think about that word and, in the work that you do? I'll focus on the recovery piece because I'm, I don't even know if I'm qualified or I have enough arrogance <laughs> to proclaim about wisdom writ large. But I do know that it's really important to recovery. And I think it's a really good lesson from the experience of addiction and recovery through the ages, going back decades and decades and decades to the point of centuries, actually. Uh, meaning that coping with addiction is not just a matter of working with your internal suffering. It's not just a matter of getting control or getting willpower. Uh, but through the ages, people have recognized that there is this um, sort of virtue-based wisdom. I'll put it this way, because it's, it's not all-encompassing of wisdom, but I think it's a crucial component that's missed with addiction, is that recovery, people have discovered over and over again, includes something about being in right relationship with the rest of the world. That one's own moral actions uh, are necessary for one's own flourishing and well-being. There's no such thing as like, I go off in a corner and I recover by myself. It is necessarily interconnected. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk about Aristotle in the book a fair bit. And I love Aristotle because Aristotle was really interested in some of these very heady questions about will and self-control but he wasn't approaching them as some sort of game. They were life and death for him. He felt that to understand the problems of self-control, such as the problem he identified as uh, acrasia, sometimes translated as incontinence or weakness of the will, uh, was not just about like disciplining yourself so that you could be more productive at work. It was about living a, a happy and virtuous life without regret and in harmony with other people. So I, wisdom in relationship to recovery, I, I think includes that, uh, that dimension beyond the individual. And that, that's a thing that I worry about across various topics in addiction, that we absolutely need medicine. We absolutely need research, but we also need these wisdom traditions uh, to fully tap in to the, the lessons and to the, the power of recovery in all of its varied forms it's taken throughout the years. I want to read something that you write in the book, and I would love to get your thoughts on it. You write, a key assertion of this book is that addiction does not exist as a permanent and unchanging fact, but rather is highly dependent on social and cultural factors. Could you say more, Carl? Yeah, it's not a historical would be the jargon that the historians used. And I'm so grateful to all the historians who taught me about all their methods and their approaches, because it was really crucial. Um, coming from medicine, there's an assumption that something like a mental disorder 
or another sort of psychological phenomenon has existed unchanged through time, that somehow evolutionary psychiatry or psychology rendered us in a certain way, and then we've been basically unchanged for tens of thousands of years. And I touched on this just briefly earlier, that what I think of as addiction is not necessarily the same as, say, for example, what Benjamin Rush, uh, one of the early psychiatrists before we had the name psychiatry, and one of the founding fathers, uh, my idea of addiction is not the same as Benjamin Rush's. And that's because... Um, addiction doesn't exist as some sort of permanent and unchanging entity outside of the flow of time that our definitions and our understandings are dependent on sociocultural understandings of will of self-control of what the proper relationship is of the individual to the society of good and bad drugs and what are the supposedly good and bad ways of modifying one's consciousness and the way that those Drugs maybe signify uh, one's position within a social hierarchy. This whole notion of like the bohemian countercultural uh, outcast didn't even really exist until, say, like the 1810s, 1820s. So that that's really powerful in terms of how we understand like what addiction is doing for a person. And... Um, I just wanted to make it very clear from the beginning of the book that I wasn't declaiming on what addiction is. I don't know what addiction is. I can make essays. I can make attempts from different angles. Uh, but to assume and to, to try to portray that this is the final word on addiction, I think is very mm. dangerous. I've got a question for you around change, I guess, if you, if you will, which you just touched on. In, as you know, in, in many of these different whether it's philosophy or spiritual traditions, this worldview, I guess, if you will, of, of impermanence. And we're constantly changing. If you think about Marcus Aurelius writing in Meditations, it's just over and over about coming to the idea that we're, we're constantly changing. How Im important is that in you know your own perspective and, and your research of, of adopting, if it is, I mean, the easy answer is I'm a practicing Zen Buddhist. So I have great faith in impermanence. It's really important to me personally on a spiritual level. And I've seen it validated in various settings as a, a mental uh, characteristic, meaning I don't think that there's a permanent and unchanging self that exists over time. I think there's a lot of value in, for example, taking that concept of selfhood and holding it loosely. Like, I'm Carl. In some ways, I'm still the Carl that I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Sure, fine. It doesn't mean that I don't exist in some sort of you know, really heady and almost solipsistic way. Uh, and we have good psychology research, for example, from the ACT tradition, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which I like a lot and which is very useful for addiction, uh, that if you pivot from thinking that the self is something durable and important to just holding the idea loosely and holding it more provisionally and taking a sort of outsider view of the self as like a thing that kind of happens and maybe it means different things in different contexts, there are actual psychological benefits for that. And I think that's especially true for addiction because ideas about some of those things we were just talking about, ideas about 
um, the self as I'm the type of person who's really disciplined or I'm the type of person who uh, is a high achiever and that must therefore mean something about me. Uh, those, those types of ideas can be really damaging. I experienced it myself. It was a major, major part of my own descent into the worst parts of my addiction. I, I had an idea of who my parents were because they had problems with addiction too. And I had an idea of who I was, meaning not somebody with a problem. And I went through all of these contortions to try to show that, to show who, show myself, uh, that I was okay. That because I was a high achieving uh, Columbia University medical student or because I won these awards or because I could still show up to work and impress people and I could still get an external validation that made me feel okay, that therefore I couldn't be a person with an addiction. Uh, and that that's a great example, I think, of how a rigid idea about a permanent and unchanging self, about the type of person I supposedly am, really stood in the way of a deeper realization that addiction is a part of us. It exists in all of us. It's not some special and unique condition. It's not some disease that some people have, but most people don't. Your your personal story, which you write about in the book, is extremely powerful. Uh, how do you think it shapes your work with people on a on a one on one basis? This this personal history that you that you have. It's a really important topic for anybody who's in the helping professions because there's a legacy of bias and. Um, ideology, I think, is not too strong a word, uh, where somebody applies their personal experience onto somebody else. And that's true not only in addiction medicine, but it's certainly true in addiction medicine, uh, where because somebody has some sort of idea about what recovery is or what the best way to recover is, they then apply that to other folks. So I've tried to be very, very careful, conscious of that history. And I didn't need the book to do that. I mean, that's readily apparent even in the basic history of psychiatry. There's some people that called psychoanalysts stealth missionaries because they had these ideas about uh, suffering and the way the mind worked, and they were going out there trying to convince other people of what was good and what was bad in terms of mental functioning. And I'm sure there were good psychoanalysts and bad psychoanalysts. Uh, I don't think, I don't mean to dump on psychoanalysts here, but I, I think there's always a danger of those types of assumptions. So I've tried to hold it very carefully, but that being said, it's so helpful and it's been really helpful for me to share with patients because it it gives me a sense of more, you know, connection and identification. I think there are a lot of ways where if it's done carefully, it's really powerful to break down that supposed divide between us and them. Like I'm, I'm a shaman up on a hill and I've got the special knowledge and you're the poor suffering saps and I'll, I'll help you get fixed. Uh, recognizing the universality of some of these struggles, I think is a really um, actually hopeful thing to do. It gives a lot of um, energy and motivation to be working on it together. In relation to habit change, choosing another particular, you know, path or direction or following a philosophy of life, how important some of the ideas about self-awareness, whether it's Socrates talking about know thyself or even someone like uh, Carl Rogers, this idea of accepting yourself before you can necessarily make a make a change. Yeah, I don't know another route, honestly, mm-hmm. based on clinical work, but also my own personal recovery and spiritual practice. I don't know another route to change other than 
radical acceptance, mm. to use a phrase from Tara Brock, yeah. and deep, deep compassion for whatever is showing up in the present moment, including myself, my habits, my conditioning, my limitations. I think that acceptance is really the bottom line. At least it's one of the first crucial steps. Uh, again, I really like acceptance and commitment therapy. There's a reason they put acceptance as the first <laughs> word. <laughs> because before you do anything else, it, maybe even before that, you have to be off autopilot and you have to recognize what's going on. You have to recognize your patterns, recognize your suffering, be able to be with it. But you can't be with it unless you accept it. That's my view. Because what is not acceptance? Uh, not accepting would mean trying to manipulate the present experience. And in the present moment, we have no choice. There is no other option. If I'm angry, the train has already left the station. Even at a biochemical level, the adrenaline is already in my bloodstream. And the emotional experience of being angry is there. Like my hands are clenched and my face is flushed and I'm having the experience. So what would it mean to not accept that? That would mean saying like, this is not appropriate or I need to get out of the situation or I need to make myself feel differently. And yeah, sure. Like maybe like going for a walk to cool down or something, uh, or some other sort of like behavioral intervention to, to take care of that emotion is totally appropriate. But like in the present moment, there's nothing else you can do, mm. I think. And I think that's true at a, at a clinical level. So if you're working on acceptance in the present moment as a cornerstone of change and recovery, then what else can you do other than like deeply scrutinize what's coming up? I'm, I'm curious when the idea of acceptance, it makes me think, as you mentioned earlier, you're a practicing Zen Buddhist and you think about our thoughts or navigating this, this inner voice, which is maybe sometimes counter to acceptance you know, for someone that maybe doesn't have that background or some sort of, uh, you know, stillness practice, how would you go about navigating that, that inner voice and, and some of those thoughts? It's funny that you say stillness practice because it doesn't feel still to me right now. And a lot of my practice today is just bringing compassion to the busyness. And all that you asked me before about what it's like to publish a book. Part of it is also just like a lot of inbounds and a lot of people who want to talk, a lot of people who are looking for help. Uh, and it, I'm waking up every day nowadays. <laughs> like, what do I have to do? What's on the to do list? Who are these people? And a lot of times they're really lovely opportunities, but it's a lot, a lot of activity, activity, activity. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's okay not to be still. And I'm also not a Zen teacher. I'm just a practitioner, by the way, just to clarify that. Um, but you asked about how people can navigate their own internal thoughts. I think radical, radical compassion is really important, too, that it's okay if things are not still. And the way this applies to addiction, I think, is that it's okay for people to have cravings. It's okay for people uh, to have struggles. I think because addiction treatment and I talk about the historical legacy of this a little bit in the book, because addiction treatment has so often been married with uh, criminal legal systems or other forms of control and oppression and coercion. Uh, there's, there's this sort of like dangerous notion of 
keeping this part like disciplined, keeping this part of ourselves that has the craving or that has the grasping under control. And that doesn't really work well. Now, after several decades of psychological research, we know that the the sort of rigid control, either from the outside, meaning like a person trying to control another person, or from the inside, uh, is actually counterproductive for self-control efforts or bringing one's actions in line with one's intentions. So uh, I, I think the first step for, um, for example, negative emotions or negative experiences is this exercise that we do actually in the second session of um, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, which is welcoming them in as a guest, which actually comes from a roomy poem, mm. welcoming them in and saying, you're here. So as long as you're here, you're my guest. I'm going to take care mm. of you. There's obviously a, a lot that comes up around the concerns of, of technology and social media and addiction. Um, how do you think about that? And, and where, where are you in, in terms of a uh, you know, level of concern around, <laughs> around technology? Yeah, I profile a guy in the book who has a severe problem with technology and porn. And this is a person who... and. I was very careful to protect his identity in the book, and I'll do that now also. Uh, a person who struggled with sort of borderline urges around looking at porn, where he had no desire to seek out um, illegal images, for example, but would find himself drawn to these sort of like gray areas where there are unregulated message boards and was just looking for like newness and freshness. And that led him to some really dark places and to see some really awful, tra traumatizing content to the point where he would try to set up passwords on his devices and uh, put in all of these sorts of firewalls and technology-based protections on his devices to try to stop himself from doing the thing. And then to the point where his urges got so strong that he would, he would just uh, go out and buy a new laptop. Mm -hmm to be able to go ahead and still doing it. So I bring up that example because uh, people have argued about these types of behavioral addictions. Does gambling count as a true addiction or does sexual activity count as a true addiction? And nowadays does internet related behavior count as a true addiction, whether it's gaming or social media or just other aspects of internet use. And getting back to my exploration about the earlier uses of the word, and the concepts that the word addiction points to. I, I think that addiction is something in all of us and it's on a continuum. And at the same time, there can be these farthest reaches where it really is severe and deserves tremendous compassion and care. So uh, I, I think we should be mindful when we say, when we use the word and we use the concept addiction in reference to technology, it's not that, there's something inherently addictive in Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. It's not that they've somehow found a way to like hack into your dopamine circuits. Uh, there may be ways that these technologies are sticky by dint of the sort of human vulnerabilities that they tap into. But uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is that it's not that internet related technologies are addictive in the sense that like drugs are addictive and they're a thing from the outside that do a thing to you. But it's just a, another place mm -hmm. where our vulnerabilities are on display. 
There's so many families. It, it seems like every every family has been hit by by addiction in in some way. And obviously, as you've talked about, it's it's on a on a continuum. But what would you say is, you know, maybe most misunderstood about about addiction that that might be helpful for families that are that are you know dealing with a loved one that is um that is suffering from from addiction there are a lot of misconceptions which is why i read the whole book about it because there's so much in history that deserves unpacking my mind right now goes to the notion of addiction as brokenness as faded as somehow irreversible and there have been versions of that sort of misconception as early as we've had a concept of addiction, the notion that people with uh, drinking problems around the time of the American Revolution, or even earlier, that people who had problems with tobacco in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, were somehow fated to use. And it's just not true. We have good recent research that that's not true. That actually the rates of recovery from even very severe substance use problems are quite high. Sometimes it takes significant effort. And the time it takes uh, someone to achieve a, a real remission of their problems uh, might take years. But the pathway to that full remission just gets better and better. There's a sort of dip at six months if somebody is coming out of a severe substance use problem where you know there might actually be like some struggles, some increased anxiety uh, in the first six months of trying to resolve a serious substance use problem. But after that, it gets progressively better and better and better. And, and I say that because I think that going along with this sort of like brokenness or faded conception that um, there's this notion that like a relapse is such an absolute and ultimate failure. Uh, now, I'm conscious of the fact that we're in the middle of an opiate overdose crisis. And a lot of opiate supplies now are contaminated with fentanyl, which is a really, really powerful opioid. And so the risk of a fatal overdose is super, super high. So we shouldn't be cavalier about relapses. And at the same time, a lot of people who are trying to resolve a substance use problem or another addictive problem, they relapse. They, they have a sort of um, uh, experiment, some psychotherapies call it where they, they go back to use. And the, the key is not to like tally up days and say like, oh, you know, once you're, you've gotten a certain number of days, uh, then, then you're good, then your problem is solved. The key is to really pay attention with open eyes, looking at what the behavior is doing for you along the way. And that can be such a tremendous source of data. And in fact, is I think quite relevant for other sorts of behaviors. Like if you're pulling out your, your cell phone because you're restless with your family, uh, what is this trying to do for me? Is this, you know, is this a solve for some kind of anxiety or restlessness or some sort of desire for things to be a way that they're not? That's really helpful. I really appreciate it, Carl. I, I wanted to ask about your your podcast, Flourishing After Addiction. You've you've got a, a very diverse set of guests. One of those guests is uh, Kevin Griffin, who was gracious enough to come on this podcast. Um, so. I love it. What? Why is there this desire to have this diverse set of guests? What would you say you're you're after? It was basically day one after finishing my book. I finished my book during COVID, and I realized the part that I loved the most was talking to people. I needed a lot of help 
the the notion that writing a book is some individual enterprise is so bonkers, really, because I well, from the very beginning, what I did is I found people the first that I knew, and then eventually people I got to be connected with who did work in history, sociology, arts, literature, philosophy, whatever. I eventually tracked down a guy who is a medieval philosophy scholar who studied St. Augustine and picked his brain for an hour. And I love that stuff because for me and for my project, it was all laser focused back on what actually matters for understanding addiction, what actually has a relevance for people's lives and for my life. Cause it was ultimately a selfish project. I was going out writing the book that I wish I had to help me make sense of my condition and my family. So at the end of writing the book, I thought to myself, oh, this is a bummer. <laughs> now, now when will I talk to these people? And I, I thought, especially based on talking to other people in recovery or other people who do work in addiction, that um, there's value in these multiple perspectives, that people like Kevin Griffin or people like Owen Flanagan can uh, give us really actionable and helpful insights into how to work with our suffering, how to work with addiction, uh, that there would be value in sharing it. So I just started inviting people and then recording it and putting it out there. You know, it's not, I feel like if you start a podcast in 2022, uh, you either get Malcolm Gladwell's production company to like back you and then you do some big launch and it's all oriented toward money or you just kind of do it and you see what happens. And for me, it's been a beautiful way to connect with people and, um, to continue conversations and to, uh, almost prompt myself to like continue looking for the unexpected connections that I kept on turning up in the book. I love it. Is there a reoccurring insight that, that comes to mind from some of these conversations that you've had on the podcast? One that's come up a lot recently is moral practice. Mm -hmm. And it might actually be Owen Flanagan who's kicked that off, but also with Buddhist teachers and also with writers and people who work in arts and literature the notion that recovery, we touched on this a little bit earlier, the notion that recovery <clears throat> is, is not just stopping use, and it's also not just getting happy. It's not just feeling better. It's also about being, I think, and many others have come to this conclusion over time, that recovery also includes something about being in right relationship with your community. Mm -hmm. That if we all are interconnected, if there is some kind of interbeing, uh, what happens to one of us happens to all of us. And my recovery at least depends on service. It depends on some sort of element of, um, first off, just not doing harm, which people have struggled with for ages in spiritual traditions and recovery traditions. So it deserves a lot of energy and attention and also to try to do some good. Once we're done, like not harming people <laughs> what can we actually do to be helpful to folks and that's not this is also an aristotelian insight too that's not a, like a bonus that you get to do after you've stopped the most chaotic use it's actually something that for me is necessary mm -hmm. to what the folks in say a 12-step community would call spiritual fitness into feeling fully awake and alive and decent such an important point uh, I wanted to ask one final question, if I could here. You write in the book how the medical system maybe has come up come up short in the treatment of, of addiction. Probably no quick fixes, but if you were in, in charge for a day and were able to, to make some changes, is there anything that, that comes to mind 
Well, definitely, because I have a, a few predictions and a, a few recommendations in the book, because I think if I write about addiction, I should include those things. There are a lot of ways that we're leaving lives out on the table, meaning there are very simple, straightforward fixes that we could do right now that would save lives from opiate overdoses, save lives from the long-term chronic toxic effects of alcohol and other addictions. Uh, it, it, some of those things include mainstreaming addiction treatment, which is a historical legacy, meaning I think most people who have any personal experience or experience in their family know this, that if you're looking for help for addiction, for some reason, you don't go to a hospital, you don't go to a medical clinic, unless you're very lucky to be in a place that has a more modern academic medical center. Even then, it's hard to do. Most people think about rehabs. And listen, my life was saved by a rehab. But why? Do we go to these totally separate facilities, often out in the woods, that don't really function as part of something integrated within the medical system? I recommend rehab to some of my patients. Sometimes it's very, very useful. Uh, but the notion that it's sort of like all or nothing, you have to go away for 28 days or not, um, is, a, is a total legacy of the way that the medical profession basically abdicated its responsibility to take care of people with addiction going way back to... Um, you know, 1920s, 1930s. And there are a lot of people who have made really, really good strides in expanding addiction treatment and integrating it with general medical treatment. We have so much further to go. Uh, there are also other things like expanding access to medications. Is medications like buprenorphine and methadone are life-saving. There are ways that we could integrate more uh, harm reduction services, like syringe service programs that provide several supplies for people who are still using in other related services that basically try to reduce the collateral damage from substance use problems while also trying to engage people in services that help them. But where I end the book is that uh, we've known a lot of these things for a really long time. It's not, A lot of these things that I've just said are not questionable. And major policymakers from across the ideological spectrum, have been saying similar things for quite a while. So why aren't we doing it? So there also needs to be a change in consciousness. There also needs to be a change in the way we think about addiction that gets beyond sound bites, that prompts people to like step back, look at it with a little more nuance, a little more compassion, note the sorts of interconnections and the universality that I've been trying to point to. Uh, I think we also need that. We need to do the, them both. And uh, it's not like we fix up the concrete policy things and then we deal with the consciousness mm -hmm. stuff. But it's also not that we just give up on policy until we change consciousness. I think we need both. Beautiful. I've got to come back to the to the wisdom question, though, here, Carl, before we before we close it up. Um, when you think of wisdom in in daily life maybe if a if a simple definition of of wisdom is is choosing good and avoiding the bad is there anything that comes to mind that helps you to choose the the good the path that you want to follow in in daily life that that comes up for you i think about the dalai lama was once asked what's the meaning of life and as far as i recall he said to be happy and useful and maybe I would tack on, because we're talking about wisdom, to be happy and useful in right relationship to all other mm -hmm. beings. And 
that's just me kind of rephrasing some other vows. There's tons of vows in Buddhism. <laughs> Another version of the great vows are do good, don't do evil, save all beings. I like that one too. Uh, but I think it comes down to taking care of oneself and taking care of everyone else. Well, I love it. This has been great. Where do you point people interested in in learning more about you and, and connecting with, with you and the work you do? The best place is my website. So it's carlericfisher.com. And I've got information there about the book, a little more information about some events that I've done and some videos, and also my podcast. So uh, pop on over and check it out. And if you have a particular interest in recovery or the different pathways to recovery, uh, that's that's my little freebie. If you sign up for my email newsletter, I've got a, a guide that I've made the, of different pathways to recovery, some of which I feel like are not not always uh, given the kind of attention they deserve in today's sort of ideological marketplace. Well, great. And I highly recommend the book and the podcast. We'll link everything in the show notes so you can check it out. Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, Subscribe to The Path. It's a free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.